Welcome to the Secretary Survey, the Irish Pre-Hospital Podcast. Welcome to the Secondary Survey. This month it's World Mental Health Month and on the 10th of October is International Mental Health Day. We're going to do an episode all about mental health, including patients that we deal with and most importantly, the mental health of responders. I'm joined this month by Dr. Anne Payne, consultant psychiatrist in Cork with a special interest in emergency medicine, particularly the pre-hospital care. And she's a volunteer doctor with the National Ambulance Service responding on her time off to a varying degree of calls in the areas that she lives. Her research and experience include mental health and responders, frontline EMS, emergency department personnel, and with a special interest in burnout. She's an ATLS instructor and she's presented at numerous global EMS conferences and other conferences about her work that she's done with first responders and burnout. So why is mental health important? Well, if we look at a population level, 10 to 15 percent of the population at any one time may be experiencing episodes or diagnoses of depression and anxiety, 1% suffering with some sort of psychotic or psychosis, and varying degrees depending on you literally look at suffering from the effects of substance abuse, drugs and alcohol. And when we do look at the effects of mental health on children, up to 10% of the children in the population can be diagnosed with or suffering from a mental health illness. So, and welcome firstly, thanks for, for coming on to the uh, the podcast and thanks for giving me your time. Thanks, Stephen. Just, I suppose, just give a, a little bit of background to the, the listeners. Can you just introduce maybe when we talk about depressed or anxious or suffering from depression and anxiety um, or somebody who's got diagnosis of schizophrenia or other mental health illness, could you just maybe give a brief overview of, of the different types of common mental health illnesses and maybe what they are and maybe more importantly what they're they are not so maybe to dispel some of the myths for us if that's if that's okay sure um so thanks for the invitation to your excellent podcasts um so um depression first of all is very common and one of the difficult things about depression is recognize it in ourselves or even recognize it in our family or other people So depression can be low mood, loss of interest. They're the two key issues. Um, The failure to experience any joy. Um, And these are associated usually with difficulties sleeping, appetite disturbance, concentration disturbance, and uh, energy lacking, lacking energy or fatigue. Um, This depression then can be become chronic if it's not addressed and it is I want to stress that it's very treatable we can go into that later if if needs be the other thing about depression it comes with a risk of suicidal ideation as well that is something that we can look at as well that we need to be able to assess for as professionals so depression is very important to recognize and diagnose and it's often hidden Anxiety goes very much hand in hand with depression and can pre- present in with psychosomatic symptoms very commonly, like chest pain in, me- in middle-aged men is very common, but it can be abdominal pains, headaches, all of these things, back pains can all come with an element of anxiety and depression. So there's a big crossover in the Venn diagram there. 
bipolar disorder then is it's it's what it says really it's bipolar like one extreme is you can get depression and the other extreme then you get a kind of a manic or a hypomanic episode so it's almost like the opposite of the symptoms that i've described for depression where you get this energy high energy so that when you're with someone who's hypomanic or or manic they have this infectious kind of buzz about them and you, you just enjoy being with them they're just fantastic company and then of course this goes spills off into a sort of a steep curve then sometimes with reckless behavior risky decision making like financial um, relationship sexual driving all those kind of things can come into it and again they can put themselves in harm's way because of risk-taking behavior so they're the two extremes for bipolar psychosis so that can happen in schizophrenia in other sort of um, psychotic illnesses and it can also happen in bipolar in the manic episode or in the depressed episode so in schizophrenia just to dispel the myth that it's not a split personality which is what is said on movies and things like that schizophrenia is a very severe mental health illness it is on a spectrum, so you can have an episode of schizophrenia and recover from it. But the more episodes of schizophrenia you do have, the more episodes of psychotic illness um, you have in schizophrenia, the less likely you're going to fully recover. How it presents is a person could start to classically withdraw from their friends, stay at home, and maybe get involved in substances as a sort of a, a self-medication. They can lose their ability to sleep, reverse day to night. Restricted affect is what we call it. They, they lose their range of emotions and then they might develop psychosis, which is belief system that is outside their normal belief system. So they might become overtly religious. They might interpret symptoms and, and stimuli as having some meaning that can be quite bizarre compared to what other people would think. I think you know what I mean by that. It's like, so if somebody hears a clock ticking, they might think that that's a sign from God or, you know, it's a yeah. sign that their life has ended and, you know, that the devil is after them, those kind of things. Or some people have belief systems that especially common are conspiracy theories where, you know, they're being watched or, you know, they're uh, being videotaped or monitored especially in mobile phones now that would be quite common and it's very hard to deal with that symptom as a supporter like a, a loved one a family member a paramedic or uh, or any professional trying to help them through that i think one of the key things is to try not to challenge those delusions and maybe just say, accept that they're there for the moment and say i see what you're saying but maybe could I just talk to you about this other thing that and maybe describe yeah, that's, the That's just really interesting, though, because I suppose it's irrespective of whether somebody has a mental health illness, i.e. like schizophrenia or something, or whether they have strong beliefs in something, it's very yeah. hard to challenge people's beliefs. Yes. So if you try and challenge their beliefs, you're going to be up against the, yes. the, up against them straight away. You're going to build up a barrier. And, and, 100%. You know, if we're trying to get people to trust us, to let them help, to yes. let us help them, yes, you know, we really have to get them on board and challenging their beliefs is not going to exactly. get them on board, which is really it's a really interesting uh, yeah. thing. And that's I suppose thanks for dispelling that myth about schizophrenia and the uh, you know the split personality, mm -hmm. which I think is is a common mis mm. mis or common held misbelief.
So that's that's really that's really interesting. Thanks, Ben. Just I suppose you touched on a couple of you know how to deal with different mental or how to deal with that um, patient with uh, schizophrenia and maybe not challenging their beliefs and maybe not dispelling what they're saying. Yes. What kind of other things I suppose if we, you know let's I suppose if we if we move on slightly on to dealing with our the patient so when we when they get a call to an incident and you arrive at the scene um what kind of things can we do as paramedics I suppose that given that traditionally our training in mental health we reasonably limited and it's it's very much you know our CPGs are very much around the behavioral mm-hmm. side of um, mental health and people who are in crisis and maybe that need that are at the, at the far end of the spectrum when it comes to the mental health crisis so like the majority of patients we come across wouldn't be at that level yeah. so what kind of things can we do when we're there on scene to maybe start interacting with patients with mental health incident uh, mental health illnesses and then obviously part of maybe building in some of the things that we might be able to do as paramedics uh, EMTs and advanced paramedics to start assessing Yes. Those mental patients be really good. I think, to, firstly, to say that I think you're doing a huge job already in, in approaching people with mental health disorders and mental health crises. I mean, from what I've seen, there's excellent experience in, in the paramedic population, but it's just to give confidence that you are doing the right thing. Um, if we take the components of psychological first aid, I'll just list them out. There are five of them. And you can see yourselves that you're doing them already. So you've got, you want to give the person, the patient, a sense of safety. You want to say, oh, you're, you know, you're safe now. I'm going to look after you. You're with a good team. Um, You want to bring a sense of calm, which you do. A sense of self-efficacy where you're kind of allowing the patient to make some decisions and trying to engage them that way. So is it okay if I come in? Is it okay if I make a cup of tea for you? That kind of thing. You're doing all that stuff already. Is it okay if you come into the ambulance and I'll take some vitals for you? And then the other part, the set, the last two parts of this are developing a sense of connectedness with them, which you're developing a rapport as you're going along with those first three, and also instilling hope. I think with any therapeutic connection, and you could argue that it's a therapeutic connection that you ha- are making as a paramedic with, because it makes a huge impression. You're going in as a safety person. So you're the first contact with professional services, oftentimes with people in mental health distress. Uh, and, and with mo- a lot of other illnesses as well, we tend to be the first yeah. person uh, that they have as a professional contact in, the, in a lot of times. Um, and it's a huge opportunity as well to, to make that sense of connectedness and instill that hope. And by doing the, the hope that you're going to give them is that you are going to be looked after and we'll explain along the way what's going to happen on your journey. That engages and gives them a more sense of security as well. Brilliant. And I suppose we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that journey maybe a little bit later on yeah. as to what, what we can expect in, in the, I suppose, the, the average kind yeah. of um, journey for, for patients. Um, obviously, everybody's, every patient is going to have a different journey slightly depending on their, their yeah. disorder and stuff. Very good. So the, the psychological first aid... Those five, those five key things are really important. I suppose after that, then what's what's the kind of what are we going to try and think about then? Yeah, so you want to you want to have a structured approach for your mental health assessment. Okay. So I think it's easy to break it down into four things. If I asked you the question, 
um, which would be the most important, Stephen? Like, so there's, I'll give you the four things and you can guess. So appearance and behavior, mood and affect, whether there's psychosis or not, you'll tell in their conversation, and risk assessment, suicidality. So would the assessment part, which is the most important part there? Well, I didn't expect a test, Anne. <laughs> um, so uh, I suppose from, from as a paramedic, my big concern is going to be the risk yeah. uh, of, of suicidal ideation or suicidal uh, intent. Excellent. Because I suppose we have to make those decisions as to when it's all well and good when somebody wants help. Yeah. The problem occurs when people don't want help. Yes. And obviously we, we might have we might touch on capacity and mental health act a little later on. But, yes. you know, having an ability to have a solid risk assessment yeah. of someone's risk of suicidal um, intent, is, yeah. is, I, I think, is a really important part Very. Of, of that. It is hugely important. And that is the bottom line for any of us when we're doing any assessment with mental health. So out of those four things, appearance and behavior, mood and affect, um, whether there's psychosis or not, which would give you the most information on the risk? Oh, I, I suppose gut feeling would say their their mood and appearance. I would have thought appearance uh, and behavior. Appearance, appearance yeah. and behavior. Sorry. Yeah, you're absolutely right, hundred percent. And that I can see that comes from your great experience as well. You know, yeah. so like, um. The question is, can you tell, is it possible to do a mental health assessment on someone who's sitting there and not speaking to you and not engaging with you at all? I suppose you can, you can, there's like, I suppose, and paramedics, I suppose, will tell you this all the time, that as soon as you walk in the door, you're starting to build up a picture yeah. of the situation, rightly or wrongly. But, you know, simple things like you, you walk into a house and the smell of the house mm-hmm. will give you indications maybe what's going on. Um, likewise, the the appearance of the patients, the yeah. appearance of their family, the appearance of the the house. So, are they looking after the house or yeah. not? Yeah. Um, I think that was uh, in with all as with all patients, going to give you a clue as to Huge. maybe what's going on. Yeah. Um, so you do, you're going to get a lot of um, visual information even yeah. before you talk to the patient. So I, I would imagine in this sort of situation, you're going to be able to gather a reasonable amount of information. Yes. Um, before you even have to talk to them or if you can't talk to them because they're not going to engage with you. Right, exactly. Um, And that's really important because you kind of underestimate the amount of information that you're gathering. And even if you sat down to write it, it would take a long time to write down appearance and behavior on someone. Yeah. Because there's so much information there. So if if you've got somebody who's not talking to you, how will you know that they're suffering then? What information are you looking for? I suppose the the simple fact of someone is not talking to you and maybe withdrawn within themselves and maybe not making eye contact. And exactly. Like that. All of those um, things. Their demeanor towards you. Yeah. Um, that's it. Yeah. You pick up. So I think, I suppose we'd probably, you get that feeling just something isn't right. Yeah. Um, and that's probably from all those visual cues that you're getting that we. That's exactly. Potentially it. don't realize we're picking up on but i suppose with experience and things you probably build yeah, up that repertoire that's, that's exactly it so you can tell with somebody who might be responding to stimuli maybe looking up in the corner of the room or turning their head very quickly listening to a sound that nobody else can hear you can pick up those they might be significant they might be psychotic symptoms okay um 
you also have to think that there might be substances or you know maybe alcohol withdrawal like the dts mm-hmm. all of these things can come into these assessments as well but yes you can get a huge amount of information based on your what you've just described excellently, Stephen, there. If they do start to talk to you, part two then is the mood and affect, like you were saying, that mood is very important. So if they're low, you can sort of get a sense that they're talking very darkly, that maybe there's we can divide that up into three. So they're very negative about their self, world or future. That's called Beck's triad. So and we, we we love we love triads in, triads, in the ambulance yeah. world. Uh, yeah, and be, uh, we've uh, yeah is Beck's triad another triad as well? There can be another triad as yeah, well. Yeah, I think there is. But yeah. this this is Aaron Beck. He's a cognitive um, therapist. So very when good. you're very negative about yourself, world, and your future, um, then that removes all sense of hope, really, doesn't it? And that puts them at higher risk for suicide as okay. well. And that can happen both in psychosis and in depression as well. Okay. Would you gather that information just in conversation or would you have uh, targeted questions that you, you know, if you're, uh, I suppose, in your role, if you were interviewing somebody, would you would you have a, a way you'd ask questions to try and determine whether they have those negative views of that, that Bex triad? That's or? really interesting. We don't have a kind of a, a structured interview because it tends to be, we, like, there are structured interviews there for research purposes, but I find that if we use our personalities, you know, like we can't change the way we converse with patients just because we're with patients. So if we use ourselves and say, ask open-ended questions, be um, open to their responses and to be sure that you listen to their responses. I think that that really is important and that forms that connection that you're trying to make as well. So you want to show them that you're a listening ear, even though you mightn't like what they're saying. Which I think is really important because I I certainly, I I suppose, as I'm sure many paramedics will uh, agree with this feedback that many patients, certainly the the ambulance service might come across, would get feedback that other services that they might be interacting with patients feel like yeah. they're not being listened to. That's right. Whether that's right or wrong, yeah. you know, that's that's their belief. Yes. Uh, and sometimes with the ambulance service, because we're, we're very lucky in the ambulance service, we don't, we only generally, as a, as a practitioner, we only deal with one patient at a time. Yeah. So we have that time and we, we're able to, I suppose, give people the attention albeit for a short period of time. I totally agree. Um, Where, you know, when you're in a hospital setting or in a a community setting, you've got, you know, one practitioner or a a team of practitioners looking after multiple patients. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't always get that ability to spend as much time with focus Mm -hmm. uh, on on, on that patient. Mm -hmm. Depending on, obviously, the the services, some services are very different. And I imagine, obviously, when you're interviewing um, patients in the mental health, teams that you're you know doing those interviews on a single basis and you're, you're given mm-hmm. that time but yeah no i agree with you i think paramedics are in a golden position there it's, it's almost like a golden hour that you have this um providing this sense of calm sense of security to people in distress and you probably underestimate the impact you have actually because you know you never get enough positive feedback for your jobs and i think it's really important not to minimize your successes there as well. Very good. Um, so generally just using our own 
I suppose social skills mm-hmm. and and how we interact with patients normally are going to bring out a lot of this stuff that we're we're talking about with yes. the with Bex triad and the negative view around yes. again negative view around self self world and future and future okay yeah. very good um is there much is what else can we think about with uh, mood and affect then is it? okay so if somebody if the mood and affect they're slightly different so mood is how I am feeling low that's my mood okay. But affect is like a range of emotions that I I can see, that maybe you can see objectively. So you can see my affect, whereas I'm, say, I, say for instance, I say, well, well I'm, um, say if I'm saying I'm very low, but actually I'm very animated and very energized. Okay. It doesn't match. Right. Okay. Right. So that can happen in manic episodes. So they're, they might be saying they're very low, but that could be transient. They're going on to something else. Then. Yeah. Okay. Um, and likewise, you could ask someone who is, say, for instance, um, quite depressed and you could say, how are you? And they'd say, I'm absolutely fine. I'm grand. But from all the information you've seen, from the appearance and behavior and from the setting that you've seen them in, they look severely depressed. Okay. So that's a mismatch in yeah. the mood and affect there. Okay. And okay. that's also a risk because it means they're not telling you the truth and you mightn't be getting the truth about their suicide risk. Okay. That's really interesting about the, the mood and affect and maybe the mismatch around those two. Um, is it important to document that, uh, uh, you know, it, in our paperwork for the hospital and it's stuff? It's very important because it shows... That is, this particular time, we may not know whether they're suicidal or not because they may not be telling the truth, the whole truth. So is there anything, so we've kind of appearance and behavior, mood and effect, and then, um, you know, trying to see if there's psychosis or psychotic episodes is kind of the next thing. Yes. Um, You mentioned earlier about in the appearance and behavior element, uh, you know, picking up on clues that they might be having psychosis or psychotic episodes maybe uh, where they're their attention is drawn to other things that may not be there. That's an excellent description. Yeah. yeah. So any, any other kind of things we might be looking for besides, I suppose, the the obvious red flags of someone having a, a very obvious psychotic outbreak or behavioral episode? Or maybe that's the wrong terminology. Correct me if I'm... No. So, so if you can see someone is responding to perceptions or if somebody is conversing with you and totally delivering the fact that they are paranoid or people are out to harm them in some way that's a very plain psychotic symptom there you know so it depends on their conversation there what are they actually saying to you and it can be easy to diagnose when it's obvious as you've seen probably and you know even with substance misuse you can get psychotic episodes as well with that quite a lot and the dts it's not exactly easy to diagnose if somebody's trying to cover it up Okay. So that right. is important. And is there any particular reason people tend to cover these things up? or is it Well, just... you're a paramedic, you're representing authority, okay. you might be part of their conspiracy world by definition because you're in uniform. Okay. Or they could have experience with the mental health services before and just not want to go in or, you know, they want to just hide their symptoms because they've had similar experiences and ended up um, being sectioned in hospital. So it's more like about their kind of self preservation that you know they 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 think it's the right thing to do at that time for themselves okay from a safety point of view would somebody who's suffering or showing signs of psychosis or psychotic episodes 
would they would they be at a higher risk of maybe abnormal behavior yeah i think you know from a safety point of view if you know someone has a psychosis by definition they're a suicide risk because okay. you're not able to assess that right and also i think be really careful that you mightn't be getting a full picture of their world so from a risk assessment from the paramedics point of view then you need to be also careful that there might be a risk to others okay yeah that's really, yeah and uh, yeah and i suppose it's it's something that we're acutely aware of in the ambulance service or in in the paramedic sphere of, of because we we operate in a lot of times we operate in the the back of an ambulance exactly. which is a very limited space yeah. environment and if you have somebody who doesn't act as you might expect them to act correct it can become a very dangerous situation very quickly so yeah. having that idea about the inability to properly understand where somebody is because they might be having psychosis or psychotic yeah. episodes is really really important you know it's great thanks Anne. so i suppose does that bring us on to then that kind of suicidal risk assessment or yes okay so so how would you ask someone then if they were suicidal Stephen? i'd be like a hammer i'd be, <laughs> I'd be blunt about it but i i would i i suppose you know not to joke about it but it's uh i i think it's important that we get to to the point and yes. um and i suppose i've i've always understood the fact that even if you know by asking someone you know have you intentionally tried to harm yourself or you know was this and an, was you intent on um suicide or i suppose the terminology is 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 the thing that we probably trip ourselves up on a little bit you know that you know, attempting suicide and all this kind of terminology um but i suppose asking someone do they have suicidal intent or do they intend on harming themselves or killing themselves i think is an important question to very good so say if you just pick me up in the ambulance now what words would you use well i suppose depending on the situation i would ask you know did you intentionally uh or did you intend on harming yourself or or basically on harming yourself is probably the terminology i'd use okay Um, so did you did you do what you did intentionally to harm yourself or to to end your life would okay. probably be along the lines I'd, I'd probably use. Okay, and if I say no? <laughs> I suppose, there's, I, I'm not sure is the honest answer what the follow-up that would be. Because I suppose at a certain point, do you, like, do you, become, do you start badgering the witness? <laughs> do yeah, you know? it's, I suppose it's such a huge thing really and we can't really do it on a soundbite, but um, badgering the witness, no. <laughs> but, but I think you're right in that you can talk plainly. You're not going to make someone suicidal if you ask them, are they suicidal? Yeah. And you're not wrong saying you're going in like a hammer. I know you wouldn't do that, but it's like, call you know, be, be plain speaking. So you could say things like, uh, I'll just go into what I would say myself because yeah. it's easier that way. So um, we call you Rupert. I don't know why that came into my head now. So, so, Rupert, I know that you've been very distressed recently and I understand why you've been telling me a little bit about it. Um, can you just tell me, do you have any sense that you might be still a, a risk to yourself now in some way? Or are you suicidal at the moment? And if that changes, if you say no now, if that changes, will you let me know? Because this is really important. It's quite a difficult place that you're in at the moment and you know we can do something about it if you're starting to feel that way again okay, because yeah. we do need to know about it yeah so having, i suppose having that 
sort of asking the question and then opening the door for yeah. follow-up if it changes and, and having that empathy is really important. Yeah, well, it's, it gives them the, an opportunity if they haven't, uh, you know, and someone at least is asking and is interested. Yeah. Um, one never knows how one is going to take that. So it's just to keep, keep an open mind yourself on the responses. But that that's very artificial. I threw you on the spot there, Stephen. Um, right, I'm used so to that. I gave, yeah, <laughs> and I gave you no background. Remember that you'll have also had your the rest of your mental health assessment where you've judged their appearance, behavior, have spoken to them, you have the sense of their mood and affect, how distressed they are or not, whether they're psychotic or not. So by the time you're getting to the suicidal thing, you've got a background information and a context to work from and okay. you can ask questions based on that. So obviously if they if they had, had admit to suicidal intent or suicidal ideation, I suppose there's a difference, isn't there, from intent and ideation? Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose from a risk assessment point, if they if they admit to intent, yes. Um that's a fair that's a red flag, isn't yes. it? Okay. Yes. What about ideation though, is it? Ideation just means thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. So you can go into that a little bit more and say, okay, you've got thoughts, say, of of um, ending it. And um, can you tell me a bit more about that? Have you made any plan? And it might turn out that they have made a plan in the end. So they might just say, I've had thoughts, but um, they might say, I, you know, if I got the opportunity, I'd run out into traffic. Or if I got the opportunity, I'd jump in the river. Those kind of things. Yeah. So it might lead you a bit further down the line to see how how risky they are so but are they going to get the opportunity what you're going to do when you bring them to the emergency department then is flag this with the triage nursing mm-hmm. and then they can hopefully arrange one-to-one observing for for the patient yeah. hopefully yeah um it does have ramifications for your transfer and your your um handovers okay and i suppose just just on that point around risk assessment and, and stuff that does substance abuse or alcohol or drugs play into any risk assessment? As in, if somebody is under the influence of substance, does that heighten or lower their risk, do you think? Or is there any evidence around any it, of that? Or? It, it really changes it in a huge way. Um, it heightens risk. Okay. So, and like, even if you look at the studies on suicide and parasuicide, which are self-harm um, behaviours and things, Alcohol is a huge component, or substances are a huge component to um, actions of self-harm and suicide. And it also makes it really way trickier to try and figure out what the risk is with an individual you're dealing with and makes them a lot more unpredictable and, again, puts the paramedic at risk as well. If somebody, we can't really risk assess them if they're under, they don't have substances on board or again, some of the big things really to watch out for is someone having an active psychosis or psychotic event uh, or somebody who's under the influence of some sort of substances that really, you know, that risk assessment really isn't valid at that point then. So it's, and and at the moment it's, everybody goes to hospital for for further assessment, but maybe when we talk about that pathway later, Mm -hmm. um, that might maybe um, help people understand why some patients might wait for a period of time in ED under observation until that they're no longer under the substance influence. influence, Yeah. Yeah. Does that kind of cover then that kind of mental health assessment? Yes. Okay. So I suppose just on that point of bringing someone into the emergency department, um, it might be a good time maybe to touch on capacity and maybe the the Mental Health Act um, because I suppose... It's all very well and good if somebody wants our help, mm-hmm. but 
we we often get called by either family members or members of the Gardaí or uh, members in the primary care who are concerned about a patient mm-hmm. um, who may not, that patient may not have the same concerns because of, of the... In lacking insight. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I suppose the the sticking point paramedics uh, and other pre and, and all healthcare professionals and, and guardia I would imagine have is that when the patient doesn't have that insight into into their own mental health and then they may lack capacity mm-hmm. that we feel that they need care mm-hmm. but again it's how we what we have to ascertain before we kind of move to the next step I suppose would be maybe something we can have a chat about okay. so I suppose first thing maybe is capacity 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 I think you know it's 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 one of the vague concepts but you need to make it concrete in order to kind of manage it on a daily basis so a person has capacity if they are able to process the information that they have been given they're able to weigh up the information the pros and cons and the implications of their decisions and it's a voluntary decision of whether they act or not okay now that Sounds very complicated. So I break it up into C equals IVD. So capacity is when you're given the information to make a decision and you're able to weigh up the pros and cons of that decision and that it's a voluntary decision and then there's no coercion involved, that, that a person has capacity to make decisions then. So paramedics will be reasonably up to date with the capacity in the in with regards to the ambulance service paperwork yeah and it's but it's often it's it's how we apply those things in real life is is, is often a challenge because yes. you know who, who are someone may seem like they're able to understand the decision but then they could change their mind or they could make no sense a few minutes later yeah, yeah exactly and, yeah. and again the other side of that is that i see sometimes we forget and it's it's often we try and put our own values on people's decisions yes that's um, true and mm-hmm. i suppose what we might think is a bad decision yes may not and, and this is a wider conversation around capacity around mm-hmm. other things but i suppose the the whole idea of you know autonomy and justice mm-hmm. in, in medical care is that people have the right to make wrong decisions as long unwise as they have decisions. as long as they have the unwise decisions yeah mm-hmm. so it's wrong is the is the wrong word mm-hmm. but certainly have but as long as they have capacity and that's mm-hmm. and that's where it becomes a challenge as a paramedic who wouldn't have as much experience in assessing people's capacity. Mm. Um, I think it's difficult, though, dealing yeah. with someone who's making an unwise decision. Though. Absolutely. It yeah. kind of goes against your own beliefs and ethics, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the challenges we certainly face when you're working in the pre-hospital world and you may, might not have the, the supports available. And, and sometimes you have to escalate. Yeah problems too and, and the only escalations we really have available to are also the Gardaí okay. um, and the Gardaí have limited powers under mm-hmm. you know they can only really fact, yeah. yeah they can only really detain is the wrong, wrong word but they can only bring someone to a place of safety for assessment basically mm-hmm. by, by a medical professional or, or a doctor which can be a challenge in itself mm-hmm. you know I suppose once we ascertain whether they have capacity or not mm-hmm. I suppose what's the what's the next step then I suppose if, if someone doesn't have capacity is it is it the Gardaí are the only option really, is it? They are at the scene. I mean, if you did have access to their GP or um, community mental health nurse, 
um, which would be unusual, you know, because these things happen at night yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. But if you did have access and to get some more information of what usually happens with them or find out where their family members are, that kind of thing, get some good collateral that way. But yeah, when there's a risk, you, you're really falling back on the guardie for help then. And the guardie will bring them to a place of safety, which will be back to the station. And then the GPs are called there to assess the person there. And the forms are filled out usually. And then there could be an assisted admission team going to pick up the person to bring them to the mental health. Okay, facility. so I suppose that'd be good. I suppose that's a good time though to maybe touch on the different statuses of mental health patients in Ireland. So you, as I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, that generally you have two statuses, your mm-hmm. voluntary admission where you, you choose of your own free will to go in and seek help. And then yep. you have an involuntary uh, admission, which is what you were saying on the forms that get filled yes. out. And they're filled out if two parties have to fill them out, is it? Or? So um, there, are three par- there are three people involved in the forms. The first person is the person who makes an application, which can be the guardie, spouse, primary relative, or it can be a member of the public if there was nobody around, say, for instance. That happened uh, once that it was an immigrant who had no status and was running down the street um, in a disheveled and unsafe way running into traffic and a member of the public stepped in and made the application. So that that's very rare. Okay. It usually has to be somebody who's connected to the person or the guardian. Or an authorised officer can do that as well. If somebody has become unwell in the community, an authorised officer can do that as well. And the second part is the general practitioner and they fill out the second form, which is a recommendation that they're taken to the hospital for assessment. And then the third part is the consultant psychiatrist. It's really important, though. It's very frustrating for the paramedics because sometimes if the forms are filled out wrongly, they're left holding the baby because the, the patient has no status. Because if the forms are incorrect, that's almost like akin to kidnapping. So you can't force someone into the unit if they have no if the forms are incorrect. Yeah. So it's a legal minefield for each step of the way. So I suppose just just to touch on that for a little bit, and maybe you're just about to go into it. But what what are the main things? If we're handed forms, what are the yeah. main things we need to be looking out for? That, that literally, it's that the names are spelled right, that the times are right. It, the key thing is that the forms are in sequence, so the first form must be filled out before the second form, yeah. time-wise. And if that is incorrectly done, which can happen in the heat of the moment, it's very easy to get these things wrong. Just, it's yeah. a very stressful situation for everybody involved out there, and it's really common for the forms to be wrong. Okay. But if they arrive into the unit and the forms are wrong, then it's it's really a problem. And then if that's the case, it's, is it a case of they present as if into ED then, as in they have to go back to ED and be a start assessment, or do they just, can they just A leave? person can walk out. Okay. Yeah. Because right. unless there is a, an immediate risk, you know, where you have to take an action and detain someone, but then that's that's you're on very dangerous kind of legal grounds okay. by doing that. Yeah, and that, that's why it's 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 a big issue, I suppose, because as paramedics, they were stuck in the middle that we yes. have a, we have a patient who we're trying to advocate for. Yeah. Um, and obviously because of paperwork outside of our control. Yes. Probably done in a location away from. Yes. From where we're delivering the patient to, yeah, yeah very challenging. Very Thank, challenging. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
that probably doesn't happen too often because I think a lot of those instances the Gardaí tend to have taken the patient from uh, you they, and they and transport the patient yeah. after once once the patient is is an involuntary admission to the unit In, then the assisted admission team can go and pick up the patient then okay and so the, yeah and that's is that an on call system or is that a um, yeah it's the um, the assistant director of nursing in the hospital that they're going to arranges the assisted admission team to go and pick a patient. Okay. Now it depends on the guardie. Some of them will transport them in, but most of them will call for the assisted admission team. Which then I suppose And they check the forms. Exactly, they're experts in that yeah. setting. Sort of so yeah. yeah. So and I, I've only come across uh, forms that were uh, incorrectly filled out once. Because we don't it's not something we commonly yes. come across. We tend yeah. to come across that situation where either someone is voluntarily going in or we and I suppose, and I imagine it's the the preferred option that they not coerce them is the wrong word, but you kind of you you I suppose they come around to that thinking of well, voluntary is the best best thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. So it's not coercion is the wrong word, but coaxing, maybe. yeah, you know, yeah. so cajoling. Yeah. Um, um. So as in, you know, that it's in everybody's best interest. So I suppose, and paramedics and the guardy and and GPs and people who work in the community. Are, are probably very good at you know spending that time to convince the patient that it's, and and like yourselves in uh, in the inpatient world that you're you probably spend time you know convincing a patient that it's in their best interest to to stay mm-hmm. or to even admit themselves in yeah oh, i mean we'll, we'll, we'll do that anyway you know whether they're voluntary or involuntary yeah. they get all get the same treatment anyway from us you know okay. um it's just the involuntary patient is not allowed to leave and that's the safety factor that's required for those individuals so um you know uh, the the involuntary status is difficult and challenging but it's necessary to save the lives of a lot of people so it's it's useful that's great thank, thank you so I suppose just we might just have a quick maybe chat about the the, the pathway. So we've got them to so obviously ideally an involuntary patient would go direct to a unit. Is that kind of the ideal? Okay, so uh, involuntary is it? Yeah, just as In, we were just talking yeah, about that, involuntary the involuntary would go directly to the unit that okay. the forms are intended to. So that could be St Stephen's or St Michael's or wherever. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and then those that. That person will be assessed there and the consultant psychiatrist must see the patient within 24 hours. Okay. Um, it usually happens quite, quite quickly. And um, then the decision is made, can they be detained or not? Okay. So then they're given all the information on their legal status and support they'll get from um, their solicitor and the tribunal in 21 days. And a tribunal is a third party kind of... The tribunal consists of a layperson, a chairperson, which is a barrister or a solicitor, and an independent consultant psychiatrist. And they review the admission and treatment of the person there within 21 days and to make sure everything is And that's under, the, that, that's under the Mental, mental health, health Act. Mental Health Act, yeah. yeah which is, and that's managed by the Mental Health Commission, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and so that's the involuntary side of things, which thankfully the ambulance service doesn't have a huge, like we have a little bit of experience with it, but it wouldn't be a very normal part of our role. Yeah. The more normal part of our role is where we come across the person who's in crisis or maybe suicidal intent. Yes. Um, and we transport them to the an emergency department yes. for assessment yes. by the mental health team. Yes. So I suppose, can we just have a, maybe a quick chat around that kind of general pathway? Yeah, what happens when they get in then? 
it's they have a varying experience when they go to the emergency department and they have a varying weight and it depends on how they're triaged and, and the accessibility to the psychiatry team or liaison team and it depends on which unit they're in for that so if somebody is under the influence as you were saying earlier if somebody's under the influence they might have to wait for a period of time for that to wear off before they can have an actual full assessment done but they're all once they come to the the, the department they're all assessed with regards to their mental health within the triage area and they'll have a post-triage mental health assessment done as well so that has to happen because somebody could arrive to the department be unseen like seen but unseen if you know what I mean yeah. and they slip away mm-hmm. and a large percentage of people do no that's wrong I shouldn't say a large percentage mm. some people manage to get a- away by slipping out yeah. unfortunately yeah. so we're trying to avoid that happening by making sure that they know when when they're going to be seen but that's not always going to happen yeah. especially the overcrowded scenarios that are happening now so anyway that's just the context Really what should happen is that they're assessed by the liaison team or the mental health team on call, which is either a liaison nurse or a doctor. And then they're given some idea of what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And usually the, what can happen is they can be offered admission or they could be offered home treatment or crisis intervention team or they could be offered outpatient follow-up and that's usually what happens. Okay. N- not many people come and go without having some sort of offer of help afterwards yeah and then that outpatient care is i suppose is starting to move very much into the community is it very much yeah yeah. most of our work as consultant psychiatrists are in the community really okay and that's the ideal place to to, the feedback from many patients we've come across is that they they don't like going to ed yeah because it's, it's, it's and again it's not the probably the most appropriate place but at the moment is the only place that it we have is, that and it's risk. very unfortunate really because they get this feeling in there that they're really low priority because everybody else is more of a priority yeah. when in fact they might be one of the sickest people in there yeah and mm-hmm. uh, it's a challenge uh, yeah. all emergency departments uh, yeah. face um and and paramedics and, yeah. and mental health teams i'm sure can can um can attest to that thanks Anne. that was really interesting I know I certainly learned a good deal from our chat. I'm sure our listeners will uh, agree. That was a very informative uh, 45 minutes. Hopefully you will be able to join us again the 10th of October when Anne will join me once more to discuss some of the issues with stress, certainly regarding responders and when stress is becomes a problem and what kind of things we can do to deal with it. If you've been affected by anything discussed in today's episode or if Anything we've discussed has highlighted some things that may be going on that you may need help for. Please reach out to your own GP, your peer support worker in the organization that you operate for, or you can make contact with Samaritans or search for mental health support on the HSC website. All information recorded is solely the opinion of the presenters and their guests. They do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider. Content is not to be taken as medical advice and should not affect established guidelines and protocols. Thank you for listening. Take care.